Hello, I'm Marcus Louth and welcome to the latest edition of the UFO Insight Podcast, where we examine all things UFOs and aliens, conspiracies and mysteries, and all aspects of the paranormal. Okay, today we'll examine just some of the many UFO sightings and encounters from military bases and facilities. And while we'll have a heavy focus here on the United States military bases, which includes some of the most intriguing alleged alien encounters on records, we will begin with an incident that unfolded over the skies of Portugal in Europe. The Otter Air Base incident over the skies of Portugal would result in three experienced Air Force pilots coming face to face with a UFO. As opposed to covering up the incident, however, the Portuguese Air Force Chief of Staff would take the unusual decision to release all files to UFO investigators in an effort to clarify the events. His reason for doing this is perhaps as interesting as the events themselves. The morning of November 2nd, 1982 would take a bizarre turn at around 10.50am. Pilot and flight instructor Captain Julio Guerrera reported to ground control that a strange object hovered beneath him. Within seconds, the strange craft ran from under his chipmunk plane to directly in front of him. The object was so close to Guerrera's plane that he could clearly see the makeup of it. He would later describe it as a round craft in two clear halves, and the halves fit together like two tight fitting skull caps. Between the two halves was a grid with flashing lights, seemingly shining randomly. The bottom of the two halves appeared to have a dark centre spot, possibly the craft's propulsion system. The object would circle and hover Guerrero's plane for close to 15 minutes. It would move at an alarming pace, performing moves not within the capabilities of any known craft. Another chipmunk arrived into the airspace, with both its occupants, Carlos Garces and Antonio Gomez, witnessing the craft for themselves for around 10 minutes. It continued to circle around the two planes, dashing in between them at extraordinary speed. Guerrero made the decision he would intercept the object. Realising that he would not be able to chase down the craft due to its superior speed, he instead headed for a spot where he anticipated it to be. He almost met the craft head-on, before it swerved upwards and came to a stop right above his plane. Then, the object would shoot off from the scene at breathtaking speed. Upon landing their planes at Otter Air Base, all three pilots would immediately make reports of their encounter. There was no initial follow-up until the Portuguese Air Force Chief of Staff became aware of the incident. He would take the unusual decision to invite independent UFO researchers to look into the incident. Not only that, he would make the military files unconditionally available to them. Perhaps the reason for the ease the files would become available for investigators was due to the Portuguese Air Force Chief of Staff, General José Lemos Ferreira's personal experience with such matters. He himself had witnessed a very similar craft decades earlier when he was still a young squadron leader. What's more, the sighting occurred in the same skies as a 1982 encounter over Otter Air Force Base. The incident would unfold on the evening of September 4th, 1957. Leading his squadron of F-84G Thunderjets at around 9pm, a strange bright object came into view. Colours of red, blue, white and green all emanated from the craft. All pilots were aware of the craft and all would recall seeing similar orb-like objects leave the main body. After observing the scene for several minutes, he would lead his squadron back to base and file a report. Although no further information or investigation happened following his report, he would not forget the incident. 
Indeed, when the request for information on the release of the military's files came to him, it was his own experience that was perhaps a driving factor in a move that was very much against the grain of normal military procedure. Although there was complete cooperation from the military, at least from the Air Force, no satisfactory answer would present itself. Indeed, the only explanation from the wider military was that the pilots had merely witnessed a weather balloon. All three pilots would refute this notion unreservedly. According to their estimates, the craft had managed vertical speeds of close to 300 miles per hour, not at all the kinds of speeds that a weather balloon could manage. When flying around the Chipmunk Plains, those speeds were likely five times as fast, at around 1500 miles per hour. Again, these speeds are far from the capable movements of a weather balloon. Officially, the sighting remains unidentified, but the craft is of intelligent design, at least according to the pilots. Our next encounter occurred on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, in the northwest regions of the United States. The bizarre events that would unfold on the grounds of McCord Air Force Base in October 1972 in the state of Washington, just south of Tacoma, would perhaps be unbelievable to even the most ardent UFO and alien enthusiast if they didn't come from the Air Force themselves, from the files of Air Force Office of Special Investigations. The report comes to us from the alleged one-time agent Robert Collins, who had come forth with the account in 2001. And while it is likely that he would do so following the running out of a multi-decade official secrets clause, the distinct lack of solid proof leads some to question the authenticity of the account. That being said, there are certainly elements of the account that are very much in sympathy with other UFO and alien incidents. In the early afternoon hours of October 14, 1972, at around 1pm, Airman First Class Stephen Briggs and Airman Dennis Hillsgeck were making their way from Accord Air Force Base in Pierce County to the Tactical Air Navigational Facility. The site was around 8 miles from the base itself, but still under the control of the United States government, and in turn, the United States Air Force who were responsible for it. The journey to the facility wasn't a long one, and upon arriving, after opening a strictly locked fence, they would enter the area before heading for the building itself. Once inside, and after performing all necessary security checks, the pair would carry out their pre-assigned systems checks of the facility. The operation was running smoothly until around 2pm, when Briggs noticed a high-pitched sound coming from outside. He would later recall how it sounded similar to a small plane engine. However, as soon as he stepped outside, came the realisation that he wasn't witnessing a small plane or any other type of conventional aircraft. There in full sight, hovering over the top of the building, was a saucer-shaped object. Furthermore, as he continued to watch, it began to descend to the ground, landing south of the main compound. It was then that Briggs quickly stepped back inside the main building to alert his colleague. After having composed themselves mentally while inside, both Briggs and Hillsgate were more than alarmed to see two creatures heading towards the fence which ran around the entire complex. Once more, Briggs returned quickly inside the base, this time to alert base security and to request backup. The person on the switchboard that afternoon was Sergeant David Holmes, who listened to Briggs state with alarm that intruders were trying to enter their base. A two-man unit received orders to attend the facility. Sergeant Dwight Reed and Airman First Class Michael Tash would arrive 17 minutes later. The scene around the compound was one of confusion and concern. They would find Briggs and Hillsgate both seemingly in a daze as they stood almost aimlessly next to their vehicle. 
When the new arrivals to the scene asked the men what had happened, neither of them could speak. Of more concern were the burn marks on their faces. Reed examined the men further and made a request for an Air Force ambulance. Tash would begin to examine the surrounding area. He would discover strange markings in the soil, itself soft from the fall conditions. Then, Reed's voice rang out from behind him, telling him to look up. He did so, and witnessed a saucer-shaped object, presumably the same that Briggs and Hillsgeck had witnessed. Reed would attempt to communicate further with the security police. However, his portable radio was essentially dead. Realising all four of them were in potential danger, Reed would order Tash to help bundle the dazed men into their vehicle before driving away from the scene with great urgency. Around a mile from the base, Reed's radio burst into life again. He would request further security police to attend the scene, which they duly did. One of these additional security police officers was Sergeant Darren Alexander, along with Champ, his military dog, who would immediately head towards the compound to conduct a search. When they were around 400 yards from the base, however, Champ would begin to bark loudly. When Alexander looked up, he witnessed two creatures near one of the remote power stations around the complex. Unsure whether they would understand or not, he called out for the strange figures to freeze and raise their hands. Instead of doing so though, they would begin walking towards him. He saw a strange device in one of the creature's hands. Fearing it was a weapon, he pressed down hard on the trigger of his revolver, firing six shots. He was unsure whether he had hit either of them or not. He returned to his vehicle to radio a report of the shots and to request further backup. Security alert teams were swooping on the base within minutes. They would, with a complete precision, search the base and the grounds. It was as they were conducting the operation when they suddenly noticed a saucer on the ground itself. They would approach the craft cautiously, circling it slowly before reporting to their supervisor and awaiting further orders. Several moments later, Captain Henry Stone would arrive at the base. The saucer-shaped object remained on the ground, with the rest of his men at a considerable distance standing around it. Stone would take a step towards the object. However, when he got to a certain distance, the object would take off and disappear out of sight. According to Collins, officials from the Special Investigations Department would soon descend on the compound. They would gather moulds, take pictures, and even take the shells from Alexander's revolver. They would also take full statements from all those involved. Then, following their investigation, they would label the incident top secret. One, officially unsolved, but not to be spoken of or even acknowledged. There are several seemingly trivial details that would appear to be of importance in weighing up the credibility of the case. For example, the radios mentioned in the report were said to be HT-220s, which were most definitely produced just prior to the incident in 1969, meaning they were very likely to be used by the United States military. Furthermore, the revolver used by Sergeant Alexander was an SW Model 15.38 revolver, also a detail that would check out with what the US military would have issued at the time. What should we make of the apparent battle with alien creatures at the compound near McCord Air Force Base? The skepticism of some aside, many details of the account ring true with others. Furthermore, the account was a legend of those who would find themselves based at McCord Air Force Base, even as far back as the late 1980s and early 1990s, certainly before Collins went public with his account at the start of the 21st century.
As we know, many legends, even urban legends of the modern age, appear to have some grounding in truth. Might this also be the case with the apparent battle near McCord Air Force Base? An incident in late October 1975 over Loring Air Force Base in Maine, the northeast of the United States, is another that forces us to ask, aside from what these UFOs might be, what is their apparent fascination with military installations, and specifically, ones that house, or are claimed to house, nuclear weapons. What's more, knowledge of the incident in real time as it was happening would go straight to the National Military Command Center in the nation's capital, and as well as physical sightings, the objects were also captured on consecutive nights on military radar. The entire incident would ultimately be put down to a training drill. As we might imagine, both witnesses and investigators, at least for the most part, were not in a hurry to endorse such findings. Incidents would begin shortly before 8pm on October 27th, when a strange glowing object was observed hovering over the base, and more specifically, the area of the base where weapons were stored. If reports are to be believed, these weapons were housed under fake camouflaged huts. That the object, if indeed it was purposeful to hover over the alleged weapons area, knew that these weapons were there is perhaps a point of interest in itself. On this particular evening, Staff Sergeant Danny Lewis was on watch duty, with the weapons area being his prime point of focus, and he was the first to see the object. He would later estimate that it hovered at an altitude of around 300 feet. On the underside was a red navigation light, as well as a white strobe type light. Meanwhile, in the control tower, the duty sergeant James Sampley would spot the aerial anomaly on the base's radar system. When he initially saw the object, he would estimate it was around 10 miles from the base. As he watched it, however, it would move around the base on a circular route, before moving into within mere feet of the weapons storage. Realising the potential security breach that was afoot, and not at all sure what this strange object was, he would begin informing his supervisors of the situation. At the same time, Lewis watched as the object made its way inside the confines of the base. Within seconds, the base was on high security alert. In the control tower, Sergeant Grover Eggleston was now following events closely, watching the strange object on one of the radar screens. Meanwhile, a command had gone out for a manual grounds crew to search the base. Requests were also sent out to all nearby military and civilian airports for any information they may have on the intruding object over Loring Air Force Base. The object would ultimately remain hovering over the base, occasionally taking off the circle overhead before returning to its position over the weapons storage for around 40 minutes. Then, it would head in the direction of New Brunswick. When it got to a distance of around 12 miles, it would vanish from the radar screens. The base, however, would remain on alert for the rest of the night and well into the next day. However, the following night, at around the same time, the object returned. Once more, Danny Lewis was on duty and would once more witness the strange craft hovering over the base and then zero in on the base housing the nuclear weapons. As it approached, those on duty or at the base watching could clearly see flashed or orange, red and white light from the underside of the craft. Lewis would report the encounter immediately, this time particularly given the strange and bizarre events of the previous evening, the wing commander himself would come to the location of the nuclear weapons. He too could see the bizarre objects hovering overhead. As it would the night before, the base's radar systems would pick up the object also. 
Furthermore, several other witnesses on the base, including Sergeant Stephen Eckner, claimed to see an orange and red object shaped like a stretched out football. They would watch as it hovered strangely in mid-air, and then marvel as the brilliant glow of light suddenly darkened. The next thing they knew, the craft was only 150 feet off the ground, hovering over the runway. Those who witnessed this bizarre part of the evening unfold would estimate the object to be at least 80 feet in length, and what's more, there appeared to be no doors or windows in the object's exterior, almost as if it was made from one continuous piece of metallic-like material. Perhaps of most interest, and certainly something we have discussed before as being a key reason for UFO secrecy, was the propulsion system, or more to the point, the apparent lack of one, at least in terms of how we understand the laws that govern flight. The entire base was put on immediate alert, and remained so for the rest of the evening. After the object moved off several moments later, once more in the same direction as the previous evening, it disappeared. Much like the previous evening, reports were sent directly to their superiors through their relevant and usual chains of command. The following day, reinforcements would arrive, mainly in the shape of National Guard helicopters. Even more interesting, the Canadian government, and in turn their military, were given permission to cross the Canadian-American border if required, so long as a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police was with them. It was seen to any interested watchers that the military was taking the incidents more seriously than they made out. According to an account that appeared in the February 1978 edition of Flying Saucer Review, a case of paralysis during an apparent UFO and alien encounter occurred on November 12, 1976 at Talavera La Real Air Force Base in Badajoz, Spain, near to the border with Portugal. The incident was not only witnessed by three military personnel, but also resulted in severe, if temporary, health problems for one of them. It also featured the apparition and disappearance of a strange glowing humanoid entity, one that appeared to defy logic and physics as it faced a barrage of military fire from the soldiers involved. Indeed, the Talavera Real Air Force incident is one of the most detailed and remarkable on record. The incident unfolded at just before 2am, when two Spanish soldiers, José María Trejo and Juan Calizosa, were on sentry duty at the fuel stock zone when they heard a sudden strange sound that immediately caught their attention. They would describe it at first as sounding like a typical radio interference, which suddenly changed to an acute penetrating whistle that was so piercing it caused significant pain in their ears. Each was now alert to the real possibility of an intruder, and so began to scan their surroundings. The whistling sound continued for around five minutes, before suddenly coming to a stop. They would undertake a search of the perimeters, not finding anything untoward and with no signs of a breach of security. However, only moments after this patrol was carried out, the bizarre whistling sound began once more. They would describe this second whistling as being so sharp and so penetrating that they feared it would drive them mad or that their eardrums were going to be ruptured. Once more the ear piercing whistling sound continued for around 5 minutes before suddenly ceasing. This time however, when the sound came to a stop, a bright light was immediately visible overhead, lighting up a large part of the ground below. This unnerving glow lasted for around 20 seconds before it vanished and sent the area back to the darkness of the early morning hours. Shortly after, a third soldier, Jose Hidalgo, joined the two Bermuda men outside, and with him was one of the military Alsatian guard dogs. He had also seen the magnificent glow and was preparing to conduct a tour of the perimeters of the base. 
the two soldiers agreed to join him, and on their way, made their way to a small hut where the guards and the corporal slept. They would wake Corporal Pavon and inform him of the potential situation unfolding. He would immediately order a full search of the area, which the three soldiers would undertake. As they set out, the entire area was completely silent and still once more. To begin with, the search was quiet and uneventful. In fact, the three soldiers took a certain amount of solace from the fact that the guard dog was calm and far from worked up. However, as they were approaching the next sentry box, things changed. They noticed a whirlwind of sorts began around them, bizarrely only seeming to affect the area where they stood. The sudden wind made them reach for and load their rifles. They each stood as still as possible, their eyes darting around the area for signs of an intruder. Then the sound of breaking branches reached their ears. They would unleash the guard dog, who immediately ran toward the area where the noise came from. The soldiers waited, watching the area the dog had run to, expecting to hear barks and snarls when it located whoever or whatever had made the sound. However, all they heard was silence. A short time later, the dog came back toward the group. The men immediately noticed how the animal appeared spooked or frightened, and appeared to stagger as though it was seasick. They would eventually manage to coax the guard dog into investigating the area in question several more times. However, each time it would come back to the men whimpering, eventually circling around them, which is something they have been trained to do to indicate danger. Needless to say, this only raised the levels of alertness and anxiety of the three men. After several moments, one of the soldiers called out in an attempt to get a response from whoever was hiding in the shadows. By this point, the guard dog had begun to snarl at the unseen presence, while continuing to circle the three soldiers. Then, things changed once again. Suddenly, Trejo experienced a bizarre sensation that there was someone behind him. In fact, he was so spooked that cold shivers went right through his stomach. At the same time, he noticed the glow of a green light in his peripheral vision. Automatically, he turned to face the green glow. In front of him, at a height of around 10 feet tall, was a humanoid figure at an approximate distance of 50 feet from where he was standing. At this point, the other two soldiers had also turned to face the strange scene. One would later recall that the strange figure seemed to be made up of many different small points of light. They would further describe it as having extremely long arms and a small head in comparison to its body. It also appeared to wear some kind of helmet. Although all of the soldiers felt sure the figure was on the ground, none could recall seeing its feet or legs, almost as if its lower body was without legs. Treasure, who was by far the nearest to the figure, was at first unable to move through shock and fear. Then, after gathering his thoughts, he raised his rifle and prepared to shoot. However, before he could pull the trigger, he found himself unable to move. What's more, a piercing weakness permeated his body. He would later recall that this sensation only began when he tried to press the trigger of his gun. It was almost as if he would suggest later that the being had guessed his intentions. He felt himself falling to the ground. Before he did so, he shouted out to his fellow soldiers to get down. With that he fell face first, unable to speak, and having problems seeing. Behind him, his colleagues were preparing to fire their own rifles. As Trejo lay face down on the ground, the two remaining soldiers opened fire. They later estimated they unleashed between 40 and 50 shots between them. However, almost immediately after opening fire, the two men looked on in amazement as the figure simply vanished into thin air, one of them describing it as like fading out of an image on a television screen. 
within several moments, the figure had simply gone. Once the entity had disappeared, the two soldiers rushed towards Trejo to ensure he was not harmed. As they did so, the strange ear-piercing whistle sounded out once more, this time lasting for around 15 seconds. Then, complete silence took over. Although he was largely unhurt, Trejo had an intense bruising type of pain in his chest, despite having fallen on it or being struck there. This would last for approximately 20 minutes before easing off and then ceasing altogether. By this time, almost the entire base had heard the shots of the soldiers' rifles and had rushed outside, themselves now ready to confront whatever intruder might have gained entry to the base. The men did their best to explain what had happened to varying levels of disbelief. As soon as the sun was up several hours later, a unit of around 50 men conducted a thorough search of the area. However, not only was no evidence of the apparent entity's presence found, not a single cartridge case was discovered in the area the soldiers had fired their weapons. Given that they fired around 50 shots, at least one, if not several, should have been discovered. In fact, they should have been littered everywhere, and later analysis of the men's rifles proved that they had indeed been fired when they said they had. Perhaps even stranger though, was the fact that not a single bullet mark was discovered in the wall behind where the strange being was stood. Although many of the shots should have hit their target, the two soldiers who fired the rifles were certain that at least some of the barrage would have hit the wall. The entire unit, including the base superiors, were mystified as to the events. Several days later, more intriguing incidents unfolded. Trejo's vision began to worsen, so much so that he could barely see. He would ultimately be transferred to the military hospital, where he would lay largely unresponsive for around 24 hours. At first, it appeared as though he was recovering and was discharged from the sick bay. However, less than a week later, he seemingly relapsed with his sudden ill health and was transferred to Bajajos Hospital. He would remain there for 10 days, while doctors conducted several tests and examinations on him. These ranged from eye and hearing tests to blood and stool samples and various x-rays. However, nothing out of the ordinary was discovered. He was eventually discharged from the hospital and returned to duty. After several days though, the mystery illness returned, beginning with him temporarily losing his sight. Although his vision would return, the overpowering unwell feeling didn't leave him and he was eventually transferred to the Air Force Hospital in Madrid. Many similar examinations and procedures were carried out on him during his time at the hospital. However, like before, doctors could find nothing physically wrong with him other than a nervous maladjustment likely to the terrifying encounter in the early hours of that November morning. After several weeks, he was again released. This time, it appeared that whatever had been troubling him, at least in terms of his physical health, was over. Ultimately, the soldiers were mystified as to what they witnessed that night, but they were certain that all three of them saw something. It was very much like a man and very tall. The events and what was behind them remain a complete mystery, as do such details as to what happened to the cartridge cases and why there was no bullet marks in the wall behind the strange creature. As was written in a summary of the case, there are many similar cases on record where figures have appeared, generally of a human form, presenting a totally non-material appearance and with an intensely luminous radiation around them. The case remains unsolved. The incidents we have looked at here are just a tiny number of the many, many accounts of UFO and alien encounters involving military facilities on record, and we will undoubtedly come back to examine some more of these in a future episode. 
Could it be that these strange visitors, potentially from another world, have a particular interest in these military facilities? Might this interest come from the same place as our interest might come from if we were sizing up a potential enemy? And what should we take from that? Are these potential alien visitors monitoring us to see how much of a threat we might be to them if they did decide to attack? Or has some kind of secret contact already taken place behind closed doors? The questions, as we might expect, far outweigh the answers. For now though, I will simply thank you for joining me once more, and be sure to leave any thoughts in the comments, and check out the links for further reading on some of the cases we have been discussing here today. Remember to subscribe to our channel and follow us on social media to keep up to date for future podcasts, articles and videos. And if there is anything you wish us to visit in a future podcast episode, then just get in touch at marcus at ufoinsight.com. Until next time, goodbye and take care. Thank you.